we're continuing this short series uh, looking at some of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and um, this morning we're going to focus on Mary Magdalene and Thomas from that text. Tonight um, Anna is going to be speaking uh, about Luke 24 actually about um, the road to Emmaus part two. I spoke about disappointment, she's going to be speaking about disappointment. Um, No, she's going to be speaking about expectation. Um, So if you'd like to come tonight, um, six o'clock, we just have some sung worship together and then a sermon and tea and coffee, you're most welcome to join us. I know some of you don't like to come because it's it's like a, a school night and it's quite late and you've got to get up early in the morning. But guess what? Tomorrow is a bank holiday, so do, do come and join us. Um, so today we look at Mary and Thomas. Um, just a little observation, if you're interested in John's Gospel, that John 20 um, mirrors almost... John 1. John 20 mirrors John 1 in terms of some of the things that have been going on. And it's been argued that these two chapters, John 1 and John 20, they kind of mark two of the most important weeks in history, the incarnation and the resurrection. So this morning, I also want to show a couple of pieces of art from Rembrandt and Caravaggio. And if you've been here the last few weeks, um, you'll notice that I keep referring to art as if I'm um, cultured and know what I'm talking about. But I just want to say I'm aware that there's a danger when it comes to me showing religious art that I could turn into that very weird uncle who's at family gatherings and boring everyone senseless with his latest interest. So just to reassure you, especially if religious art isn't your thing, I'm not going to include art in every sermon I preach from now, which some of you will be very pleased about. Occasionally, but not all the time. So in light of that, shall we pray? So Father, we've, we've sung, may your word move in power. And we pray that as we look at the scriptures, that your word would move in power in our lives. So um, you'd bring people back to yourself. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just start with a, an advert from a series of adverts that we're pretty familiar with from Specsavers. Can we just show that advert, Julian? Thank you. Seen those adverts? Anna tells me that, was, that advert was made years ago, but Anna says she went past there this morning. It's still the same price. Bargain. Um, also, if you look through Specsavers, are they, are they, do they originate in Guernsey in terms of the thoughts? Is anyone here who thinks them up? Uh, no, but it, do you think them up? Who thinks them up? Because I went through some of them, working out which ones might be suitable to show in church. And there are quite a number that I wouldn't show in church, especially the one about the sauna and Gordon Ramsay. Um, look it up later. Um, but the adverts are all about seeing clearly. And the chapter from John's Gospel that we look at today is all about people, Jesus' disciples, seeing Jesus clearly. Next slide, Julian, please. And then what we find as a result of people seeing Jesus for who he really is, is that people then believe in the risen Jesus. They put their trust in him and their lives are changed. They're transformed in many ways. So seeing and believing are two key themes of John chapter 20. And we're just looking at two instances. There are some others as well. And this chapter invites us now to see the risen Jesus. 
so that we might then believe in him, so that our lives might be changed, so that we might then bring his life to others, seeing and believing. So one of the first disciples uh, who sees and believes in Jesus is Mary Magdalene. In this chapter, what we find, and the beginning of the chapter says, on the first day of the week, and that's a clue within that in terms of what John is trying to convey. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene goes with two other disciples to the tomb. Um, And they've not gone there to see the risen Jesus. They've gone there full of grief and despair because Jesus is dead. But when they get there, they find that the tomb is empty. And the two men, it's quite typical, they're not quite sure what to do, so they just run away. But Mary stays. And in the text, it says she bends down and she looks into the tomb to see the tomb is empty. And she probably assumes that Jesus' body has been stolen. So understandably, she's in grief about the fact that Jesus has died, but then someone's nicked the body, she cries with grief. But then what we find is that two other men turn up who are in fact angels. And they say to her, why are you crying? As if it isn't obvious. (laughs) Um, I I say to Anna, that's something, why are you crying? She goes, well, surely you'd know. Um, But basically someone's nicked the body And she is very upset. So Mary says, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. And it's at this point then another man turns up. So there's lots of coming and going. And this scene where the other man turns up is captured by Rembrandt in this picture that we put up now called the risen Christ appearing to Mary Magdalene. And so what we find in the text is that Mary initially thinks that this other man is the gardener. But then... He calls her by name, Mary. She recognizes his voice and she responds and says, Rabboni, which means teacher. And this particular text, those few verses, are captured in this painting by Rembrandt. And there are some key truths about what is happening with the risen Jesus and what Mary sees clearly about him that are in the text and also in some ways in this painting. The gospel writer, John, is very different from what you call the synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke, uh, in terms of how he writes. He's quite mysterious. And what you find is he leaves clues in the text uh, indicating various things that he wants to convey to the reader. And Jesus um, is shown as being a gardener in this particular text. Rembrandt portrays him as a gardener with a large sun hat and a spade in his hand. Does anyone wear a sun hat like that when they're doing the garden? Some of you do, I don't. But um, look, at, look at Jesus in, in this painting. When I look at it, he's firmly placed front and center of the scene. And it, it kind of feels like he owns all everything that's going on around him. He's clearly in charge, this gardener in the garden. Now, if you mention those words in first century Judaism, garden and gardener, that has clear echoes of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, where Adam was effectively a gardener. And he was charged with taking care of the garden, the world, to be a good steward. Also, as I've said, mentioned first day of the week, which John does at the beginning of John chapter 20, that also has echoes of Genesis and the beginning of of creation. And I think that what John is hinting at in his gospel, what Rembrandt is trying to portray, is that a new creation is taking place before Mary's eyes. 
she begins to see that Jesus is the new Adam. A new creation is taking place. Jesus stands by this huge tree, which I like to think um, it represents a tree of life in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, but also the tree of life for the healing of the nations in Revelation 22. And then in the distance, uh, you could argue that you see this city, the new Jerusalem, immersed in the light of a new dawn. If you know Revelation 21, it speaks about that time that Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God and that God's dwelling place will be with his people. He will dwell with them and God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In John 20, I think that as Jesus wipes away these tears of grief from Mary's eyes, so she then begins to see him clearly. And she believes that this is the new Adam. God has started a new thing in Jesus. Tom Wright puts it like this. The new Adam, the gardener, is charged with bringing the chaos of God's creation into new order, into flower, into fruitfulness, into blossom, into harvest. So Mary goes from a place of despair and loss to a place of fresh hope and new life. In that garden of Arimathea, she sees Jesus. And you could argue that she goes from a bitter place to a better place. And what she then does, having seen Jesus, and Jesus says, don't hold on to me, In other words, don't hold on to what I was. I'm doing a new thing. She then rushes back to the disciples who are hiding away and declares to them that Jesus is alive, that God is doing a new thing. And because Mary was the first to share the good news of Jesus with the disciples, she becomes known as the apostle to the apostles. The first apostle was a woman. Mary. She sees Jesus, she believes in him, and it transforms her life. Second person that we look at um, who sees Jesus and then believes is Thomas, often known as what? Doubting Thomas. Um, Hasn't got a good reputation. But I actually think the fact we call him that is a bit harsh according to what we find, and I think also our own experiences. Here's another painting by Caravaggio, um, Julian, and um, It's called the incredulity or the disbelief of St. Thomas. I have to confess, I'm not very keen on this painting. Um, Partly because 10 years ago, I had an abscess in my stomach. Some of you might remember this. Um, And I had to have fairly major life-threatening surgery to deal with it. So there was this big cut about here. I, I said earlier that it was about six or seven inches. Anna reminds me it was about two or three, but you know... And so I had this big wound and they wanted to heal it from the bottom upwards. So they didn't want to stitch it up. And so what happened was I was attached to this, it's like a hoover that was attached to this wound for about three weeks. It came like my new friend. And um, it was a horrible experience. I've got the scar to prove it. And we're just going to show that now. But No, no, we're not. We're not really. I, I have got one of the wound actually. Can we put that up, Julian? No, not really. But I have got it. So this picture reminds me of that experience. And the thought of someone sticking their fingers in my wound is 
grim. Plus, if you look carefully, you'll see Thomas has got absolutely filthy fingernails. They know nothing about infection control. But one of the, the intriguing things about Caravaggio and his religious paintings, and he's very different in that they're not very kind of sweet and sentimental with kind of cherubs flying around like some religious art. But they're very down to earth. And if you look at his paintings, and Barbara's lent me this lovely book actually about Caravaggio's work, um, you can see that the people he paints look very weathered. They're wearing clothes that are worn and tattered. Just look at Thomas. He's kind of very ordinary. And part of the reason for that is Caravaggio didn't have a lot of money to hire proper models. So what he'd do, he'd roam the Italian streets and he'd ask the poor and the destitute and the prostitutes to model for him. And they did. Apparently, one of the, uh, his famous paintings called Death of the Virgin, which was Death of the Virgin Mary, um, it was rejected by the religious bloke who had commissioned this painting because he said that Caravaggio had used a prostitute as a model for Mary. My question is, is how did the buyer know that? But I do think that there's something kind of divine in what Caravaggio is doing. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 wrote this, God purposely chose what the world considers foolish to shame the wise. He chose what the world considers weak in order to shame the powerful. He chose what the world looks down on and despises and thinks is nothing in order to overthrow what the world thinks is important. And so there's something in his method and in his paintings, I think, that speak of the God who chooses and the kind of people God chooses. But back to Thomas. Um, Jesus appeared to his disciples in John 20. Thomas wasn't there. So he'd heard about the risen Jesus, but he'd heard it secondhand. He'd not seen it for himself. And so actually, you know, understandably, he struggles to believe. He's got that modern day thing of FOMO, isn't he? He's had this fear of missing out and he's missed out on what the others saw. And he basically thinks that what they're saying to him isn't true. And I think that Thomas has got a point in some ways. Jesus has appeared to them and they're spouting off about it, but he hasn't seen Jesus. In order for him to believe in the risen Jesus like the others, he wants to see Jesus for himself. He says this, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and my put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And I would say, looking at this text, I don't blame Thomas for wanting to see and touch Jesus before he believes, like all the other disciples have had the opportunity to do so. He's looking for some kind of evidence that he'd commit himself to. So what we find then is that Thomas, from the time that the other disciples have seen Jesus and Thomas wasn't there, to the time when Thomas actually sees Jesus. It's a whole week he's left in his place of doubt. And then it says, if you look at verse 26, that Jesus came, and the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And immediately he turns to Thomas. He knows what has been going on in his heart and his mind. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't tell him off for his doubts, uh, which I think is good for us to know. We're in good company. You know, we can come to Jesus with our doubts like Thomas did. But he invites Thomas to see his hands and his side. Now, Caravaggio in this painting, <clears throat> he jumps the gun a bit uh, because he shows Thomas sticking his fingers, his filthy fingers, into Jesus' side. Jesus is almost like pulling his hand towards him. But we don't find that in the text. 
It seems that for Thomas, the presence and the peace of Jesus is enough for him to believe. And then he makes this incredibly bold declaration that no one has ever made before. He says, my Lord and my God. Others have hinted at it, but Thomas is the first one to acknowledge Jesus as God. So Thomas sees and he believes and his life is transformed. And legend has it um, that Thomas took the good news of Jesus to a, a place of what is now modern day Iran. And then he went on to India. He established some churches and he was martyred for his faith. He sees and believes and his life is transformed. So Mary and Thomas see Jesus and they believe in him. But what about us? Who won't see the risen Jesus in the same way that Mary and Thomas did. But we are encouraged to believe in Jesus. What about you? What about me when it comes to seeing and believing? If you look down at verse 29, um, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we're blessed. It means that if we believe in Jesus, even though we haven't seen him, we're blessed. And to be blessed is to know the favour and the goodness of God. And on a good day, I would say that I'm blessed as I believe in Jesus. I know his goodness and his favour upon me. But that said, it isn't always easy for me, if I'm honest with you, to believe in Jesus. At times, I can be like Thomas and countless other Christians down the ages and have huge doubts about who Jesus is and what he has done. My life, my life, and you may well be the same, I don't know, is a jumble of faith and doubt. At times, I can live what Parker Palmer calls uh, life as a functional atheist. A functional atheist is someone who says that they believe in God, but they function in their lives as atheists. We can live as if God wasn't really there. You know, we might pray at the beginning of the day, thanking God for his goodness, asking for him to be with us, but then throughout that day, we live as if there is no God and that our lives depend entirely on us. We are functional atheists. I mean, you can imagine that in my job, um, I've been in loads of um, <coughs> church meetings. And sometimes I run these church meetings in a way I'm going to describe. And we gather together and we do what you might call a perfunctionary prayer. It kind of opens things up. And then we carry on as if God has got nothing to do with it. And then we get to the end, and we think, oh, maybe God's still around, and we say another one. That's what we might call a functional atheist, and I, I see it too much and too much in myself. But to avoid being functional atheists, I do think that we need to find ways in our everyday lives in which we can see Jesus so that we might believe in him. It will be different from Thomas and Mary, but we still seek to see Jesus. So, next slide, Julian. How might we see Jesus so that we might believe in him and are transformed? So let me just suggest 
three ways in which we see or encounter Jesus so that we believe and we don't doubt who Jesus is, so that we don't live as functional atheists. And um, these ways of seeing all begin with a letter S. Next slide, please, Julian. Uh, no particular order. They are saints, scripture, and spirit. Next slide, please. Saints. So, anyone know who this man is? George Verwer. Some of you will know him. George Verwer um, was a family friend who over the years was a great encouragement to me. He wrote me letters, he sent me books to help me in my faith. Uh, and he died just a couple of weeks ago at the age of 84. In his lifetime, he set up a very significant global mission organization called Operation Mobilization. And he, he wrote books, he traveled the world, he just did some incredible things for God. He was remarkable. And his life of following Jesus has been an inspiration to me. George is one saint among many that have helped me to see Jesus and to believe in him. George, like all of us, had feet of clay. He's very clear about his failures and his shortcomings, but he was an inspiration. And I think I want to say to you, to help you see Jesus better, I'd encourage you to find saints. And I'm not talking about those who have been given the title of saint by a church. We're all saints I'd encourage you to find those saints, maybe dead or alive, to read about them, to listen to them, to watch them in their success and their failure, and to be inspired by them, so that you might see Jesus and you might believe. And I, it's a good uh, biblical thing to do. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 said, follow my example as I follow Christ. And actually, you know, we are called to live our lives in such a way that others can see Jesus in us. So be inspired by saints. Um, the second thing, um, some might say, is the meat in the sandwich. Uh, next slide is scripture. Get into the Bible. This unified story, we looked at this last year, that leads us to Jesus. The scriptures will help us to see and believe. If you look at this last uh, couple of verses in John 20, um, the gospel writer says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Bible has been written so that we might see Jesus more clearly and believe in him. So read it, study it, meditate upon it, and allow, allow it to speak to you of Jesus. My, uh, my dad spent most of his working life working for a Christian charity called the Pocket Testament League, and you can see their logo on the screen. It was set up in 1893 by a 12-year-old girl called Helen Cadbury. She came from the Cadbury chocolate family. What a great family to be born into, don't you think? Chocolate for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And at an early age, Helen Cadbury read her Bible and she came to see Jesus in the scriptures. She believed in him and she made it her lifelong task to read the Bible and encourage others to do the same. Read, carry, 
share was her motto. And she particularly um, used the Gospel of John in that. And she said this, if we could only get people to read the book for themselves, it will surely lead them to Christ. Um, let me see if I've got these down here. <clears throat> I, did, I, I sent my dad a message this week. I said, have you got any John's Gospels hanging around? And um, so he sent me a whole load of them. These are, these are for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. It's a little bit out of date. Defender of the faith. What's, going to, what's he going to say anyway? Let's not get into that. Um, but, but I've got some John's Gospels here. And, and maybe you think, oh, I feel challenged to read about Jesus. Well, if that's you, come and find me afterwards and I'll give you a John's Gospel to take away. Read three chapters a day and you read it in a week. If we could only get people to read the book for themselves, it will surely lead them to Christ. Okay, the final S is spirit. One of the reasons that the Holy Spirit is given as a gift to us is so that we might come to Jesus. The Gospel writer talks about that in John 14. 15 years ago, next Sunday, I preached my first sermon at Trinity. Time flies when you're having fun. It may have dragged on a bit for you lot though, I don't know. But um, if you were here then, can you remember what I preached on? <coughs> Graham? Yeah, well done. <laughs> I actually preached on the importance of the word and the spirit. Because I think we, we need both to help us see Jesus. Uh, next slide, there you go. So David... Uh, Watson said this, all word and no spirit, we dry up. All spirit and no word, we blow up. Both word and spirit, we grow up. And I've been in different settings where that has been the case. We need to be open to both the word of God and the spirit of God so that we might see Jesus and believe in him. And the spirit of God, in my own experience, as I pray most days, Come Holy Spirit, fill me afresh. Comes to me in very ordinary ways. Giving me strength for the day, conviction of sin, wisdom to live well. But at times, the Spirit of God has come to me in extraordinary ways. Ways that can feel quite mystical, otherworldly. Where I've experienced something of God in a mysterious way. Um, next slide. Catholic theologian. Karl Rahner uh, wrote this in 1971 before the, the boom of the Pentecostal church and the charismatic movement. He said, in the days ahead, you will either be a mystic, one who has experienced God for real, or nothing at all. A mystic is someone who has had a direct experience with the mystery of God. And if you go through the Old and New Testament, you find them again and again. People like Moses and the burning bush, Elijah and the ravens, Mary and the virgin birth, Peter and the vision of a blanket, Paul on the road to Damascus. There are lots of mystical experiences in the Bible. We find also throughout history as well. Think about someone like, was it John or Charles? He spoke about being at Aldersgate in London where his heart was strangely warmed and when he was on a, a boat going over the Atlantic, he sensed the presence of God on him. And I've been reflecting on that quote from Karl Rahner because I think he's true. I can see in my own life where I've encountered the mystery of God and that through that, I've come to see Jesus afresh. I've been given strength for this journey of faith. And, and I actually think that those who are mystics, it's not just confined to a few. 
I think actually as we believe in God, as we follow Jesus, that we are all mystics in some way or another. This past week, I've done my own mystical experiences audit. If you want to know what a vicar does, he does weird things like that. Next slide, please. And, and over 40 years of following Jesus, this is what I came up with. These have been my mystical experiences. Not a lot, but enough. Enough for me to see, believe, and be transformed. Easter 1984, I was in a Butlins holiday camp chalet with another person watching a preacher on TV. We are there for a thing called Spring Harvest. Uh, we chose not to go to the big meeting, but we watched EastEnders, and then we watched this bloke on telly. And, and the Spirit of God came upon us unexpectedly and powerfully. October 86, I went to uh, a charismatic house church that met in a Catholic school in Oxford. And it was there that I just wept uncontrollably as the Spirit of God came and dealt with all kinds of stuff from my teenage years that I struggled with. July 2002, I spoke about this the other week. I was making confession to a vicar in the vestry of a church in Bromley, opposite McDonald's, and the spirit came and took this weight that I'd been carrying off of my shoulders and filled me with joy. March 2009, I was praying with Jonathan Latoc. Some of you know Jonathan. And as we were praying, the spirit came and touched our lives afresh. And a really weird thing happened. Jonathan said, look at my hands. And he had what looked like gold dust all over his hands. It was very weird. But it did something in our spirits. Sometime in 2014, I can't remember the month, I was writing a sermon in my office upstairs and was just overcome by the presence of God. So not many. You might think, you know, you're a vicar, you should get these at least once a week. Well, you might do if you're in a Pentecostal church, certainly not the Church of England. But, but, but I would say enough. Yeah, I'd love to see more, but there's been enough. And, and I, I would say that in most of those situations, I wasn't purposely seeking something from God in that moment. I was seeking God in general, I think, and at times I wasn't at all. But the Spirit came unexpectedly. And in those mystical experiences... I encountered God for real. I would say that I came to see Jesus and to believe in him. So, just to wrap up, next slide. Next steps. What might this mean for you, for me? I think that for us to see Jesus and believe in him so that we might have life in him, I want to encourage you this week to pay attention to saints. Pay attention to scripture. Maybe read through John's gospel. Be open to the spirit so that we with Mary might hear Jesus call us by name. So that we, like Thomas, might be able to say, my Lord and my God. Shall we stand as we pray together? So Father, we pray that as those first disciples met with the risen Jesus, that we might also meet with him. Not in the same way, but through saints, through scripture, 
by the Spirit. Help us not to live as functional atheists where we say we believe in God, but it doesn't really make any difference to what we do day by day. But help us to be mystics. Help us to be open to what you want to do in our lives. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.